Hello everyone, this is Trey Borden, and welcome to this episode of What We Gonna Do. This is the site for sore eyes, you have no idea. This is really great. How are you, how are you doing, Leah? I'm doing great, I'm doing great. You know the drill, taking it moment by moment. What else can we do? I was looking at my face uh, or my hair. I finally got a haircut yesterday. Yeah. So, you know, that side is done. Okay. Uh, but I was looking at my face or my hair when I signed on without you, and I was like, thank God for that crown act. <laughs> so I'm putting it to the fucking test. <laughs> All, day. All day. Let them know. All day for the rest of my life, it looks like. Mm-hmm. Um, awesome. So, yeah, last night we had this debut for this art project I've been working on with Patrice Colors and her art collective in Inglewood which is a, a BLM mural and light installation on the rooftop of the Crenshaw Dairy Mart, which they've repurposed into a uh, art collective and art space. And our unveiling was on Juneteenth last night. And it went very well. I was oh, I felt very great. grateful. It was I a saw very it on Instagram. Week. It looks great. Yeah, it was dope. So yeah, yada, yada, yada. I'm tired today. So I came a little <laughs> casual. Um, I'm here for it. Okay, well, yeah, so I've already done the intro, so let's just get started. Um, thank you so much, all of you, for joining us uh, for this episode, what we're going to do about black advocacy, how we can advocate for black shit effectively. Um, and so, you know, this is obviously casual. Delilah's like, do I need, do we need to be saying shit? <laughs> nah. I mean. <laughs> so, I mean, I guess I wanted to get started kind of um, allowing each of you to kind of briefly introduce yourselves and um, kind of like what your relationship is to the world of advocacy. Why don't we start with Delilah and go Leah and Andrea. Andrea. Well, Andrea. Hello everyone, Delilah Clay. Um, I am an attorney and a lobbyist at a firm in Sacramento called Manette. Um, and generally, uh, I represent business clients, um, but also have an active pro bono lobbying practice and had the distinct opportunity to work on the Crown Act last year with Leah. She was the lead lobbyist and brought me in, um, which was an amazing opportunity to advocate on behalf of black people and black interests. So, yeah. Boom. Leah Barrows here. Um, I am also a lobbyist at a um, lobbying firm here in Sacramento. I don't specialize in social justice issues per se. I'm more of a generalist these days. Um, And what lobbyists do, basically, we have different clients that we represent before the California State Legislature and the governor's office. So basically, we're protecting their interest. If there's legislation that's introduced that hurts them, then we try to kill the bill. If it's something that they want to go through, then we work to try to get the bill passed. So that's like kind of in a nutshell what we do as political advocates in this business. Um, like Delilah said, we had the, the great opportunity to work on the Crown Act last year, and that just really opened up my heart to a whole new um, kind of like world of advocacy and recognizing that when you're working on issues that you really give a shit about, it changes the entire day. Like it's not even like <laughs> a you're working on stuff where you're really going to have impact. So I'm kind of making a shift now to try to expand my portfolio to continue to work on more um, social justice type issues, especially now given the the climate that we're in. So thank you so much for having us. Sure, of course. Last but not least. (laughs) Hi, um, I'm Andrea Perry. I currently work for Mercury Public Affairs Firm as a vice president. I have only been with Mercury for four months. However, um, prior to, I spent my whole life in public uh, policy, public safety um, spaces. I worked for, I worked for two members, one who is a sitting senator and still on public safety in this California State Senate. And I, my previous boss um, is also on the Assembly Public Safety Committee. So I have been working in that space for quite some time. Very excited to have this conversation. Um, especially with um, Leah and Delilah, who have, um, you know, helped usher me into this multi-client kind of climate, um, which is new to me, but I'm very excited um, to still have clients that are interested in the public safety space. So thank you again for having us. Well, of course. Well, I just can't tell you how wonderful it is to see all three of your faces on this Zoom. This is really powerful. And I already feel advocated for, you know, um, well, let's start with you, Andrea, like uh, public safety. Let's start with that. Um, I think that all of you must be interpreting these events. I mean, both as advocates and as black people, just, you know, astounded at kind of like that it's taken this long to even get to a point where we feel like the change is possible, but also seeing real, I mean, for the first time in a long time, like 
you know, dare I say hope that like substantial change is possible. Um, how do you interpret that, uh, Ms. Perry, initially, kind of from someone with a public safety background? Um, what do you think some of the opportunities that are, you know, maybe more tangible than before are? Well, and maybe really also what prevented those from being possible before? Um, it's really interesting, actually, because I was thinking about about the conversation around public safety and what that looks like. And I'm also an HBCU grad. So that is, um, you know, uh, <laughs> um, kind of what has fueled me in this space. But I will tell you, having gone, I have my degree in political science and I had grown up really thinking about, wow, there are a lot of black people in spaces to impact black communities and working in California and working in for uh, members in the public safety committee, but also working in the, in the public safety space in a nonprofit, it's very different. I find myself or I found myself as one of the only black people in the room when we were talking about policy and talking about impact and change. I'll tell you quickly, we were, I was at a row, I was at a table. We had just had breakfast with an assembly member and we were talking about what's next for the steps to really get change. Um, and we were discussing more mental health prison conversations and bail, but, the, but someone brought up, you know what we should just do, we should just get Kim Kardashian to tweet. Like she'd be great. That's who we're going to get in the forefront of this. Now, this was several, several years ago. And I, I, I said, really? And, and the girl goes, right? Like, you're so excited. And I was like, oh, no, you read that really all the way wrong, all the way wrong. This is not this is not her space. Right. I mean, now I know she does great work in her own right. And that's fine. But every single step and every single option to impact black people. Right. And prisons and reform it's not going to just come from Kim Kardashian's Twitter. Like that's just not what's going to happen here. Um, and, and so I think just, I think that's one area where I'm most proud to see a lot of black people who are present and in the room and not just, you know, um, just mouthpieces when people need them to show up and testify one time, they're actually a part of the process to create these bills and get them in front of the right people and be a part of the process all the way through. And so I think that's the one thing that's, making me more hopeful and optimistic about this space that we're in now is that we are, we are firmly present um, from conception to, to implementation. I mean, and I'm not sure what you two have to add, but like for me, it seems as if like, you know, a lot of these rooms are filled with people who like, are just really caring about what their voters want, you know, either for kind of cynical reasons or for pragmatic reasons, like they need to get reelected. And I think that what I'm seeing is a lot more public sentiment that is demanding this change. Uh, and so I think that also bolsters kind of what is possible in these rooms. And like, how can you guys speak to that? I, I, I would agree with you and just say that, um, you know, if you think about the history of America, it's been so much time demonizing and fear mongering against black people, um, that politically it has made sense for people to be strong on public safety, both Republicans and Democrats. Um, and so you have a lot of reticence and fear um, related to sort of easing up on um, the way that we approach criminal justice, justice the justice system generally. Um, if you look at California, um, there's been a trend over the last maybe six or seven years to, to really rethink um, public safety and criminal justice reform, and there's been some really positive steps in that direction. Assemblymember Weber had um, 8392 which, uh, last year changed the police use of force standards. Um, there have been efforts, uh, Senator Skinner did a bill um, to make police officer misconduct records public um, so that people can access them. Um, there have been some efforts to sort of move the needle um, on criminal justice reform, certainly nothing like what we we're seeing now. And I think um, one of the biggest challenges that we have right now is, is really organizing on, uh, on the fly. You know, what happened, what's been happening over the course of three months, I, I, for me, it's been a combination of, you know, coronavirus, being in quarantine, the disproportionate impacts on, on Black people's health because of, um, you know, an inadequate and unjust healthcare system that we have. Um, you know, compounded with the economic impacts on black communities, and then just one after another, 
the deaths of black people at the hands of, of white folks and a white supremacist system um, that's really created this, this sort of opportunity for um, more people to see and to understand what we've been talking about for a really long time. Um, so I, I too am choosing to, to be hopeful about this moment because there's so many new voices added um, to the chorus of sort of the activists that have been banging this drum for, for years now. So. And I, I would also add um, that this is more than just about the criminal justice system. Like we have to tackle this from many angles. And just to give you an example um, of how we can't rest on our laurels in this is that right now there's a bill going through the um, state legislature. Um, it's by Assembly Member Weber and it would add ethnic studies to um, the course requirements for the CSU system. Mm. Simple easy, doesn't seem like it would be anything that would cause any funk, but there's still opposition on this bill, right? And, and, and what we're saying is this isn't being proposed to just add another hurdle for students to graduate just for no good reason, right? This is to ensure that graduates are exposed to cultural competencies, to the social um, injustices that have been in our history in this country. Um, it's crucial to knowing these things in order to properly navigate um, our multicultural nation, right? And so you can see like after this whole, you know, the, the, the George Floyd uh, momentum started gathering and you had most of your white friends when they're checking in on you, the follow-up question is, well, you know, um, what are some resources? What do I need to know? What, 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 what is something Welcome that, to the Leah Library. It's Right, <laughs> right. And it's like, this is a sad reality. It's a sad reality of how poorly our education system does to educate students um, on anything that's outside of white history. And to, and to see that there is opposition to this, that a Democratic senator spoke out against it in committee, um, especially given the time that we're in right now, just lets us know that we can't, we, we can't get caught sleeping, right? We have to stay on top of these people. We have to keep them, keep them accountable. We have to keep them on the ball because even the smallest thing is still going to be a hurdle. Yeah, yeah I mean. It's, it's like, yes, we have a, a different landscape. So there are certain things that we can do now that wouldn't even have a chance to see the light of day, but we still have to stay on top of it. Right, and, and like when, oh, go on, go, no, please go, Delilah. I was yeah. say that lack of information amongst white folks is a huge barrier to, to you know, the, the possibilities of progress that we have right now, you know. There, I think one of the positive things that we are seeing is that people are trying to educate themselves. If you look at the New York Times bestsellers list now, um, it has a lot of books on there like White Fragility and, and things like that for white folks who are trying to educate themselves on these histories um, that have been impacting black folks that we know about and have known about for centuries. But they are just very confused about what's happening and what's going on and how did we get here. And so them needing to catch up is a barrier, frankly, to us being able to, you know, create the momentum to, to make changes that we need to have better lives. 100%. Yeah, completely agree. And I mean, I mean, and that's at best, you know, like white ignorance and the need to, and the yearning for knowledge, like that's the best case scenario in many instances. There are people who straight up don't want uh, to change anything, you know, and I think that I want to talk more uh, about that. Like what are kind of structural barriers and like actual well-resourced barriers to this change. Like there is an opposition, right? It's not like we just have to ameliorate ignorance. Like there are people who profit from the way it is, like literally, you know, oh, like, sure. like how, can, describe like what we're up against. If you guys, if you three can kind of each way in. Well, I mean, the, 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 the real, the reality here is that this isn't something that people are going to want to give up their power easily. Like, the system has to be completely real work, reworked. This isn't a one and done scenario where, where you tackle one issue. We have to tackle so many issues right now. So any and all policies that support a redistribution of wealth and power, that's what we need to do. They don't want that. That's what we're going up against. This isn't about a few subsidies here and there. This isn't about charity or tokenism, right? Mm -hmm tokenism because that's a real fucking thing excuse my language um this excuse is about, <laughs> this is about sustained process, right this is about creating generational wealth and and powerful legacies for our people so we have to go into this knowing what we're up against this isn't just you know a few bills here and there like we're trying to really change some stuff and like yeah, articulate I'll who go on please 
Oh, I was going to add, I actually, when we talk about what we're going up against and we're talking about it externally, we all need to, we need to talk about it internally too. And so two points on that, when I, um, staffing and I went to the public safety committee and I said, you know what, it feels like every time I want to run a bill, there's something contradictory where I'd have to run three other bills for this one bill to work. And I remember Reggie Jones-Sawyer brought up to his committee and said, we need to take a look at rehashing the penal code because it doesn't make sense. There's too many amendments. And, it, and, and when lawyers are going in to defend their client, there's 20 reasons or five reasons why they should get off. But there's 30 statutes to say why they should be convicted. And so there's like this penal code that is a constant level of confusion, not just for those of us who are lobbyists or former staff, but for the committee themselves. I mean, they said it would take years to rework the penal code. And so if we're constantly still dealing with mass incarceration and, you know, and not really dealing with the outside of, you know, victimist victims issues and, you know, when they come back out and out of, of these, these situations, we're not really fixing a problem, right? We're just continuing the cycle and just continuing to flush people in and out of our criminal justice system. I also want to point out number two, because black people are not innocent at this space. They are not. We have to self reflect as well, because I can't tell you how many times I would see black people, black advocates, black folks in the streets, and they want to work, but they go hire a white lobbyist or a white firm. They that don't trust. They don't play. They don't. They, they think they play within the rules by hiring white people. And it's a white folks lobbyists. They know the rules too, but so do we. And you cannot sit here and have folks walking around the building that don't look like you, telling your stories. That doesn't that that doesn't make any sense. Not to say that white people can't do a good job in some spaces, but the goal should not be to just hire them and overlook black lobbyists because of the maybe mistrust within our own black community, right? So I do want to bring that to the forefront as that's kind of an area where I think is, you know, that needs to be really looked at as well is why are we not trusting other uh other black people within this space um who who know and can work the room just as well as anyone else. Well, white yeah. supremacy is uh that's how insidious it is, right? We're in it as yeah. well. Yeah. Yeah. I'd like to speak to some of the moneyed interests too that, that, um, you know, sort of uh, create opposition to change. I think one of the biggest ones in the criminal justice space is obviously police unions and uh, correctional officer unions that spend a lot of money um, and have a lot of juice in the legislature and in your local, you know, towns and cities all over America um, that are entrenched in um, maintaining the status quo. And um, the politicians and folks like that have to run their campaigns, and that makes sense. And that campaign operates off of money to be able to advertise and get their message out. Um, you know, having a union come in that has supported you financially in your campaigns and saying, hey, this is something we don't like, and we have this problem in X, Y, and Z, and they make their points, right? And it, it, it's persuasive. It can be very persuasive. And so I think um, sometimes with the... the you know, the activists are coming in saying, hey, we need X, Y, and Z. Um, but when you've got that moneyed interest and that sort of political consequence on the other side of the aisle, um, it, can, it can give members of your city councils and our legislature and looking at Congress some pause about how they make those decisions. And so I think, um, you know, that's got to be something that as a community and as we're organizing, um, that focus on accountability and how we, we make sure that accountability is, is upheld. And I've seen in some places where they're talking about trying to, you know, keep unions out of giving in certain political races. Those have um, First Amendment consequences and can be difficult to actually do. But, you know, at least as voters to pay attention to who is this person receiving money from? And is that person that I want to support if they're receiving money from someone who is actively advocating against my interests? Those are the sorts of things that I think as voters and as a community that we need to be highlighting um, and, and really talk about uh, because those are the, that, those are the forces that, that help to maintain the status quo. Well, that's the accountability, right? I mean, you've seen some candidates now who are either rejecting or kind of giving back money from, I mean, there's a couple instances here in Southern California where they've said, we don't want police union money. I'm going to beat you without it. And I'm going to take you, you know, I'm going to take you on as a result of it. Um, what is, I mean, just to give people a sense of like how powerful these unions are, like comparatively, like 
are they the most powerful? Like I know that the teachers unions won. Like I, I would say that I, from my lay knowledge, I, I'm, I'm aware of them being amongst the most formidable lobbying kind of advocacy groups is the ones for police and public safety yeah. and correctional officers. Is that the case? I would say labor is probably the strongest and they wade into public safety issues occasionally as well. Um, which is like bail, for instance, there was, all a ton of advocates, but SEIU joined the crew and, you know, with all their money. Um, but I think law enforcement, I mean, it's scary how much money they have um, and how they con and, and it's not just they give money and they're quiet about it. They give money and they go in and have the conversations and they have these folks direct cell phone numbers, their chief, their DO, anybody who knows them. And so, um, I mean, I mean, I'm going to let you guys speak, but I, I just, I think it's terrifying how much money, one, is put into politics, period, but two, how much law enforcement uh, not just gives money, but like expects a full return on every dollar that they give. And I'll say also to the previous conversation, all skin folk and kin folk, and we need to always follow the money when we're dealing with anyone that you're voting for when you go down the ballot and not just D in it up or R in it up as you, as you move down. Mm -hmm. yeah 100 percent. i mean so like given that um how do we take advantage of this moment to do things that like politically weren't possible i mean obviously we can highlight people who have benefited from these unions um you know as as, as black people who are able to navigate this system i mean I want to get to the systemic part, but like, I, I, I don't want to forget to touch upon like, what is it actually like being in this building and being black women as beautiful and effective as you all are, you know, I mean, like <laughs> the proof is in the pudding. Um, but like, what is it like in terms of just being an effective lobbyist as a black person? You have to, and a woman, you, you, you I, really have to have to navigate the, the world differently. There was a time where um, I worked at a firm that was all white men. And when white men are advocating in this space, it's a different ballgame. Like you walk in the room and they have influence just for being an old dude. I walk in the room, I don't have influence just for being a black woman. I have to work for it, right? So I have to move differently. And so there was a time where, you know, I had to have a talk with one of the partners in the firm when he was questioning the way I was doing certain things or my strategy or the way I operated. Um, you know, like going to a lot of coffees and lunches to build relationships, making rounds in the Capitol, doing pop-ins and saying hey to people when I didn't need something. So it's not like I'm always just going to them when I have an ask. Um, and, you know, you spend a lot of time doing that because you're building relationships, you're cultivating them, maintaining them. And I had to have a real talk with him. And luckily he was open enough and he got it. But I had to let him know the way I move in this building is way different than you move in this building as a white man. I don't have the influence that you have. I don't have the access that you have. So I have to create it. I have to be creative and I have to insert myself in a way that you don't have to. And I just need for you to respect that. And, and those are just things that you have to take into consideration. Yeah. The intersectionality is, is, is a real thing. I think women in politics generally um, have real issues with things like, you know, being rumored to be sleeping around and doing X, Y, and Z that men never really have to deal with. And to the extent that they are having a lot of, you know, relationships, people think it's cool, right? Um, for women, it, it's it's a different ballgame. But then I think particularly as black women, oftentimes we walk into the room and people, you know, don't really, depending on the room, if it's a bunch of people that don't exactly know you, they might, you know, see us and think, oh, she's really young or she's this and that. And it's just like people don't really know exactly how to situate you the same way that they would an older white gentleman. Right. Um, and so just learning how to assert yourself in a way that is true to yourself, but also not too threatening um, and not too aggressive. And, you know, you just kind of have to walk these, these very interesting lines that I think black women across professional you know, spaces know and understand and figure out. You just have to figure out, figure out personally how it's going to work for you. Um, yeah. And it also, you know, Delilah brings up a good point in that, like, this industry that we're in, just in and of itself, working in politics can be very cutthroat, right? Especially when you're on the lobbying side, because you have to be aggressive. There are times you have to step outside of your comfort zone, and you just have to kind of just get in there and go for it. And as a Black woman doing that, you're immediately defensive, right? You're immediately on guard and aggressive, right? You get those labels immediately. But, like, a white dude doing it is just, he's effective. Oh, he's so effective. Yes. Right? 
got, got to hire him. He's effective. Yeah, like, he's assertive. He gets things done. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think I'm going to add to that, too, is, you know, fighting. I think with any black woman, kind of like Delilah said, just in any profession, we're always fighting up against um, our, our tone, our presentation, how we enter into a space. Um, but also avoiding tokenism issues too, right? I mean, like when you are the only black woman in the room, right? You're, as we know, whenever you're the only black person in a room, you're representing all other black people, right? And just as the same for black women. Um, I also want to tap into looks, right? Because lobbying and politics is super shallow, right? And so, you know, with the Crown Act, obviously, you know, that was leaps and bounds for all professions. But I think in politics too, we, we are, you know, there are other lobbyists, women lobbyists of all ages that can wear certain stuff that we could never wear in the building. Never, you know. And so keeping that, keeping that, you know, uh, focus. Is in like they wear things that are too revealing or sexy that oh, if you yeah. wore them would be completely unprofessional? Oh, yeah. oh, yeah, absolutely. I've seen white women walk into my office on a two o'clock, uh, when, I, when I was a staffer in the Capitol, at two o'clock in the afternoon with a red dress up to her inappropriateness, as my grandmother would call it. And you're just like, ma'am, it's two o'clock in the afternoon. What you got going on over there? Like you're coming in to meet my boss, but she's like, I'm lobbying. Yeah. Like I'm, <laughs> I, need, I need your boss. I mean, to that's yes that's called so, advocacy. <laughs> this is my yes dress. Right. Um, and then uh, I also, I just want to point on this because it drives me bananas and I know it drives y'all bananas, but when people, see you and view you and you're trying to have a conversation with them and they point out two things or they do two things. Either one, after you're done talking to them, they go, Oh my God. So tell me about your hair. So how do you, how does this work? And you're just like, have you heard the last 20 minutes of our conversation? Or are you just focused on the girls? Um, or I'll, so totally focused. So then, and then they do the thing, like they're talking to someone they go, yeah, it's so good to see you Becky. And they see you and go, yo, Drea, what up? And you're like, Oh, don't do that. Hmm. Just don't. We're at the workplace. Can you not? I don't even know you that way. So, yeah, I mean, it's like you're, you know, you're kind of fighting like all these different angles. And so when you present, you, you like are always constantly thinking about things. And one thing I thought Leah was going to say, because this is her jam, is being authentic, right? It's like showing up in this space completely whole and healed personally and then coming into a space professionally and just being your whole self, right? And not letting your environment and others around you impact you know, how you, how you proceed and how you interact with people around you. So. And I, I feel like I want to um, piggyback off of what Andrea said, because I think that, you know, broader than just the criminal justice issues that folks are really focused on for good reason right now. I think what, when you talk to black folks, what we really want is this conversation to happen in all sectors. We want, you know, businesses, yes. your Black Lives Matter statements are great, but what about black retention and recruitment in, within your organization? Like, what are you doing? And, and, and how are you treating your black staff? And when your black staff came to, you know, HR and, and complained about somebody doing something that was in the microaggression category, what did you do about that? How did you approach that person? Those are the kinds of conversations that I think more broadly than just, you know, focusing on criminal justice reform and police shootings and things like that. When you say Black Lives Matter, what we want is for our lives to be just as free as yours. It, it, economically, you know, in terms of criminal justice, in terms of opportunities to build wealth and start businesses, it's just thinking about the black businesses that have been impacted by COVID because they're not able to access loans yeah. and they're getting in, ignored by their banks and things like that. Like yeah. that's the kind of stuff we want everybody everywhere to, to look inside at yourself and your organization and say, what can I do to be better to black people? And have that be the goal. It's like, we're not here just to make sure y'all don't die. You know, it's like, we're right. here to make sure you guys actually have the same sort of life that we take for granted you know, white people take for granted. Um, and so with that in mind, like, I, I, I don't know, you know, there's a, any number of industries, every single industry on the planet needs, you know, to address this issue. Um, but given the kind of plethora of options, kind of what should the priorities be? Um, and kind of if, if we had our pick, if we could say, let's ma wave a magic wand and tomorrow we have this legislation or we have this policy consideration, um, what would each of you do? Like, what would each of you say? Like, this is what we need to focus on. And if we did, here's what the change would be. 
I'm going to say this because I, like I said, usually I am a business lobbyist. And, and frankly, what we look to our clients to do is you tell us what you need, right? And I think the advocates and the lawyers on the ground and the people who are doing this work on a regular basis, they know exactly. They can point to the code sections. They can, you know, talk about the barriers that they've seen on the ground. You know, for the, for the lobbyists, uh, frankly, I would say that the, the California Black Legislative Caucus um, has an ambitious sort of spate of bills that they have been working on um, this year uh, that are broader than criminal justice reform, but have been augmented um, in this current moment to include even more things, right? Um, and I think they're, they're getting started in a good place. They, um, there's obviously, uh, uh, Dr. Weber has her bill to repeal the ban on affirmative action, which is huge for black people in California to be able to focus funds and resources in areas that target black people and, and other people of color. Um, uh, Assemblymember Gibson has a bill to ban carotid restraints. Um, there's a bill uh, by Assemblymember McCarty um, to um, have the attorney general investigate police shootings and investigations uh, of, of misconduct. Those are the, the kinds of things that, that the Black Caucus is working on that I think are amazing. Um, but I also think that, you know, this conversation, particularly when you're talking about police, is hyper-local. Um, there are decisions and rules and things happening at the local city council level um, and in your particular communities where people know what the different levers and opportunities for, for power are. Um, right now in most communities, they're grappling with how to implement AB 392. So I would say look at your local city council and see what's going on related to that. Um, but then in addition to that, they might be making decisions about budgets right now. Um, they right. might be renegotiating, you know, police salaries. There might be, you know, Union and so contracts. You, exactly. And so in, in terms of developing, you know, the platform for right now, um, you kind of have to really look and drill down at that individual local level and say, what's going on here that we can, where we can kind of turn the lever and create some change in the immediate right now um, that I think is important for people to focus on. And, and it's, it's, it's holistic. I, I touched on this before. It's, it's holistic. There is no one magic bullet. Like we really have to approach this from, from many angles, from, from many just kind of um, hitting points. I mean, in, in, in like, like Delilah said, there's so much that's happening on the local level. We would be remiss as, you know, advocates on the state level to continue to ignore what's going on locally. I mean, um, in terms of just like, for instance, the, the, the defund the police movement, the stark reality is that California spends like between, I don't know, I want to say like 40 billion. billion or something on law enforcement in the state and that's state, county, municipal level. So it's across the board. And you can't really hear those numbers and not wonder why our state and local priorities lean so heavily, right? It's like you think about it and you're like, this isn't about protecting something. This is about intimidation and control. And I read recently that LA County, um, I think it was LA County, dispatched only 12% of their calls on violent crimes. Only 12%. So this begs the question of why the police force is stacked with weapons, tanks, and gear at the levels that they are if only 12% are for violent crimes. Even those violent crimes that they're dispatched out on, why do you need a tank? Right? Why do you need like all that, all that, you know, military gear? So if 78% of your calls are for nonviolent complaints, but you're spending an inordinate amount of money on that type of weaponry, then that's a budgeting problem that clearly needs to be looked at. And, 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 and we're talking about um, things where right now I'm, 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 I'm running a budget play for a mere $50 million for low income kids to continue to have access to early childhood education. And I'm getting blocked left and right talking about there's no money, there's no money. And these jo these jokers, the police, they're out here with these inflated budgets playing GI Joe. It's like, no, nah, miss me with all that. Take care of the kids. Take care. Take care of people who really need it. Because it's like we're not taking yeah. care of the kids, and then they end up having to deal with y'all in this riot gear. Right. You know? Right. Like, it's, let's it's, just it's on the front end, front end investments yeah. for back end savings. Yeah. I mean, I challenge LA County for. City, but I think you're right. I think it is county. But I challenge LA County that if are 12 percent of those violent crimes call are those are those 12 percent crime violent crimes being called in or are police violence a part of the 12 percent? Because I'd really like to know what violence looks like with 
law enforcement. And I think that constantly they're always lowering these numbers, right? To say, look, we're doing such a great job. That's why we need a tank and missiles for, you know, seven square blocks in LA, right? I mean, that just, I mean, it's, it's, it's wild. But I do also want to point out um, a couple of, a couple of points uh, to piggyback on, on budget as, I mean, I, I'm working with a client right now who is really solely responsible for providing grants to school districts for children to eat meals right now because kids are starving because of COVID. They're not eating their free breakfast and lunches that they get from school. I'm asking for 63.2 million. I have, we are, we are getting all kinds of blowback from different entities within uh, you know, elected and other advocates, right? Because as we know, uh, or maybe as you don't know, but education, when it comes to education and money, it's very difficult to get money out of that pot. Um, and I also, I, I really want to start, even if we can rewind further, that it has to start from the top, right? So we're talking about COVID, right? Our whole world, our whole state has been flipped upside down. And now everybody's cleaning, right? Now, look, for me, when I read this, this is what we're doing now to clean. It's like, were we living this dangerously in the world before? What, what's going on? Um, you should have been doing this already, but it has to start from the top. And so when we're talking about cleaning, right, we're talking about all these state contracts for schools, right? State contracts for cleaning state agencies. I used to work at the Urban League where we had a janitorial uh, program, right? Where these guys would come in, learn the program, and they would get out. Some of them had their own business. Some of them didn't. How many do you think are going to get state contracts? None. It is not going to be a minority-led uh, industry as it kind of is now. A lot of the janitors that you see in school campuses, a lot of the cleaners that you see in state buildings, they're Latina or Latina X. And black people who are who are cleaning these facilities. But when we talk about, um, you know, we talk about the governor and, and any agency that's going to be uh, start working on on the cleanliness of our, our state is we're we're still not going to be at the forefront, even though historically it's kind of been our space. So that was another area. And the last point I will say just to just to talk about this a little bit is education. We talked about the ethics bill already and how insane it was i think that i think it was an hour of conversation um and of course you know nobody actually wanted to touch on the issue of why we learn about you know helen keller or you know Anne frank you know but we're not learning about some of our own civil rights advocates here you know even in the bay area in sacramento um and i think that once we start educating our our, our young ones and not the black kids right because when i have a i have an 11 year old son we've been celebrating juneteenth since, since conception with him right i mean you know, we don't always do Kwanzaa, but he recognizes it. It's, it's the young white kids that need to be educated on, on civil rights. It's not, oh, Martin Luther King and Malcolm X is a bleep on the map. Why were these issues important? You know, we, you know, we as a people, and I'll even say this, is like, we as a people historically are so resilient, but it, 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 it's exhausting. And we shouldn't have to function in a space where we're constantly having to, constantly having to fight every time we wake up. And I'll even say this, and I know this ain't a part of the conversation, but black people do not hang themselves from trees. And I want people to hear that. That is not our plot. Not that black people don't hang themselves. We do not historically hang ourselves from trees. And I think that that's a larger conversation. I know we're going to get into systemic racism. I got a good point, a couple points on that. But we, that is just, go that is it. just ideal of like education, right? Like young white kids wouldn't go, no, he, they said he had mental illness. Of course he would hang himself or herself. But if they knew if they knew the historical strange fruit, they would know that that's not our lot. That is not what we do to, to ourselves. That is not how we envision our death. And uh, anyway, so I'll let us move on to systemic racism. I don't No, that, that, that was a great point. And there's, there's too much, yeah. there's too much history attached to it. It's a hard no. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, getting back to the point about the budgets, first of all, yes. I mean, so yeah. uh, one of our previous guests, Erica Smith, she used to be at the B and now she's at LA Times. She went to Victorville and Palmdale to like look into this. And then and now the brother of that guy has been shot. And she's just like, in what, in what world are black people during, during this moment are, this are hanging moment. themselves from trees in California and Texas? Like, I need a deep investigation into what's going on with that because we all know that there's something deeply wrong about that. I mean, in terms of the LA County, um, the LA County, so the police officers who are in the school district, so there's like a police department within LA US yeah. or school district, yeah. they have recently uh, voluntarily given up their grenades 
And so they're like, you know what? We're just going to give up our grenades in the school district. And everyone's like, y'all had grenades? Right. What the fuck are you doing with grenades in the school district? And this is your reform? You know, it's like, that makes me know how much reform we need that y'all even have grenades in the the, school. And the fact that they'll, and the fact that they'll, sorry, I get really passionate. I'm sorry. But the fact that they even tout that as, as we're making a change, we no longer need grenades. Yeah. I mean, I think a few years during Ferguson was another time where they were local law enforcement were giving up their tanks. And I believe someone tried to run a bill in California. I don't know who it is to say that California uh, law enforcement can no longer have military grade, um, military grade uh, equipment. And it died a painful death, like a painful, obvious death. And don't be confused. Democrats did not support it either. And so it's, you know, we're, 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 you know, I mean, you know, people talk about the Republican Party and how it's like you're a Trumper or a Republican, but there is definitely a difference in the Democratic Party of like true Dems and people who just want to feel good about themselves. Like there are, there is really a void there between the two. Um, and I'm finding that even more and more as I move out of the public safety realm and into other industries that there, that, that there's like a divide there. Um, that's actually really disheartening. I want to, I want go on. I was just going to jump on that political point. Everybody's complicit, right? And I think, you know, you see that in, um, in our politics and what, you know, when you just looked at the presidential primary, trying to find somebody who was actually speaking to the issues that you care about in the ways that in which you care about them. Like, there are problems in the Democratic Party. There are Black people who are like, I can't hold these folks accountable. They're not really listening to me. So what's the point in participating, right? Um, and I think, you know, at, the Republican Party, unfortunately, hasn't really created a viable option to create competition for our votes. And so a lot of black folks are like, all we can do is look to the Democratic Party. Fair. That's how that's how I position myself. Right. Um, but the question is how specifically we hold them accountable to our needs and to the things that we want. Um, and, and I know that people are paying a lot more attention. It's about shining lights on those things yeah. that actually matter, like those votes, yeah. you know, to, to prop up police and do different things like that. It's gotta be time out for that stuff now. Yeah. We can't do that. Yeah. I wanna, I wanna jump in and talk about, I mean, this I think is more sensitive, but I think really needs to be talked about. How do we hold black legislators and leaders and policymakers accountable? I mean, like I, I, it's a, it's a weird energy right now because you don't, it's like not a great time to attack black people. But like when I look at the congressional black caucus and I look at, you know, some of the legacy black organizations that are sucking up all of this donation money from corporations um, who have being very comfortable with the way things are, you know, from my stand, from my standpoint, have not been the, you know, they're in the rooms to, they are the token in many cases. And they're not the ones who are like holding people's feet to the fire in a way that someone on the ground is needing that to be done. Um, how do we demand more from even the black people we have that are supposed to be advocates? Cause I feel like a lot of them are like, <sighs> being put in front of us and, and are kind of moderating the radical change that we're advocating for in some cases. So, you know, I don't know if everyone shares my opinion, but that's my opinion. So like kind of, how do we do that? Or, if, you know, to what extent do you think that's necessary? Well, I think it's a dangerous game to ID every black elected as an advocate, because just like with white people, we're not a monolith and some black people will come in with different interests. Um, I think again, to another point, all skin folk and kin folk, and you need to do your research because if you're looking to someone who's already elected and you haven't done the research on them, right? And we can talk about strategy and how black people should be moving in this space and how to keep the ball rolling for advocacy and make real change. But you need to do your research on people you're voting for, not just solely depending upon people who are already voted in because they already have their dollars and cents, right? Um, I think that I think that in California and in some southern states, we have been really lucky to have good black people who are elected, who are here with genuine purpose. But I do think that we need to I do think that some black local elected, sometimes you just need to leave them where they're at and just say, if you're not with us, you're against us, essentially. 
you know, and then find another advocate that's maybe not black, you know, that could support, you know, your, you know, the, uh, some of the black electeds. Um, I have a couple people in my head who I find grossly misrepping their districts, grossly, like disgustingly. And, but you know what? I don't go into their office. Like I, I obviously, I don't deal with them because I know that going in there, I already know what I'm up against. I've already done my research. I know where the money flows through them and their interests. And so I don't, I don't bother with them. Now, if I were in their district, I would be making noise to get them out. Right. But some black folks in their district are just saying, well, I'm glad we have a black representative and just leave it at that and don't want to see change. Right. Because we get into a weird thing with black folks sometimes where we're like, we got to be together. We got to be so together that we can't go against anybody. But you know what? Harriet Tubman had a pistol for a reason. And mm-hmm. she said, some of y'all got to, if y'all got to go, you got to go. And that's just <laughs> where we're at, you know? And so I, you know, so anyways, that's, that's my, you know, moment. But, Thank you for that. Yeah. And, and to the, I would speak to the black organizations. I think um, there are some uh, groups that have traditionally, you know, represented black folks um, that, are really struggling with um, participation from folks our generation, right? They're not recruiting and bringing in the new, you know, voices, the new rounds of talent because of, to, to your point of, of what you're talking about, Trey, there's just sort of this disillusionment with, you know, how is this organization really representing me and us? And I think what we're, what we're, we're seeing is um, sort of the creation of new organizations and, and less sort of heavy centrism and more disjointed sort of local voices. I mean, Black Lives Matter is a great representation of that. It's very decentralized and it is much, excuse, much younger than some of these other organizations that have traditionally been in the room. Um, but as a, as a, you know, political operative, it is important to be in the room as well. You can't discount the power and the value of being able to do that. And so trying to find the balance between um, uh, you know, demanding and agitating for radical, dramatic change. And then you have to take that energy and momentum and bring it into a space where you're actually talking about specific policy prescriptions and you have those representatives who really represent, who, who align with you, but can sit down with those policy leaders and go toe-to-toe on the actual policy and not just, you know, not just the people rabble rousing in the streets, but actually the mouthpiece that you need to like talk mm-hmm. about, okay, this is what people are actually wanting and needing. Um, and and I, I think that some of those organizations, I'm not going to name any names and do all of that stuff, but um, they're seeing this energy and, and they're recognizing that and, and we have to hold everybody accountable. If you are reporting to um, to represent the interests of black people and black communities, you know, how are you holding your partners accountable for that? If you're taking a check from, you know, Corporation X, what's on the other side of that? What are the requests that we actually need from them besides just them funding, you know, the new building or whatever for you? Yeah. Um, and, and those are the things that as, as younger folks, as we're creating our own organizations, and then even as we look to the, the organizations that have been around for 50 and 75 years and things like that, you know, to make sure that they're also aligned and a little bit more closely related to, to the things that the lived experiences of people are around. Yeah, and, I, and I'll, I'll piggyback on that real quickly too, is like some of the organizations that have been around for a long time are run by white people and financed by white people. And so when we talk about some of these organiza- organizations who people on the ground are black, but the funding sources are not black and they dictate how the people on the ground are moving, right? Supporting, uh, supporting legislation or supporting um, uh, elected officials. And so I think it's wonderful that we've seen a ton new organizations pop up because they're black led, black supported, black funded, because a lot of the times with organizations that have been around for a while, they don't have our best interests at heart, starting with the money. Yeah, ending with the money. Oh. Yeah, I, I just want to I want to bring it back to um, the, the black politicians conversation. And just as advocates, as black advocates, I think that we have to fall on our own sword and talk about the ways where we haven't always stepped up too, right? The way um, California politics works right now is that the Legislative Black Caucus and the Black Lobbying Corps, we do not operate in lockstep. We need to be way more connected. We need to provide each other cover. 
um, and, and, and we need to work together in order to really be able to mobilize our efforts to help them when they're running these tough bills. Now this year, after all this stuff popped off, I will say that Delilah and Andrea and I stepped up, we reached out to the Black Caucus and we said, how can we help? And we're yeah. talking to our firms to be able to take on pro bono clients or to be able to yeah. um, talk to yeah. clients that we have that are paying to put their yeah. back behind some of these bills. And we're not just talking about soft support where we just like send in a letter. We're no. talking about boots on the ground lobbying, mm -hmm. counting votes, really talking about yeah. the issue and painting a picture of what's going on. Because one thing I'm going to tell you right now is that when you're advocate, advocating for these types of issues, this isn't just about going and talking about the policy implications. You really have to sit there and you have to paint a picture for non-Black people that tells a story in such a way that they can really feel the impact of it. So like for yeah. instance, Delilah and I worked on, on the Crown Act. We had to break down the history of Black hair. And just for y'all for who don't know, um, that was like a, a, a huge um, bill that was just like anti-discrimination, prohibiting employers and schools from dis discriminating against Black folks for wearing their natural hair. Um, in protective styles, locks, braids, twists. Most people um, are like, that has to be a law. You're like, yeah, actually. Right. Yes, unfortunately. So when we're lobbying that, like we had to really break down the history of black hair. We had to talk about how it was used against us as a tool of hatred. We had to talk about the subjugation. We had to talk about how we were forced to assimilate and what that does to your psyche. There are so many things you have to break down. So yes, the black legislators are held to a certain standard, but us as advocates, we're held to a certain standard as well. And I'm happy that we're getting out front now and we're offering to really step up and, and offer our services and our support now. But really, when I look back at it, this should have been done, right? And so also going forward, we're, we're leaning toward the end of session right now. And, and, and when interim starts, the legislators are going to go back to their district. But starting next session, we have to do better at mobilizing and, and getting everybody to a place where we're working together. And as lobbyists, we're providing members cover. And as members, they're supporting us as lobbyists and they're helping to get us contracts because that Crown Act contract that we got, that was Senator Holly Mitchell. That was Senator Holly Mitchell going to the client and saying, yes, I will run this bill. Um, I wanna do it this way, beefing yep. it up, but also saying, you don't know anything about California politics, so you have to hire a lobbyist and I want it to be black woman led. That's yep. what we're talking about, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Circle. That is, it's, a, it's an ecosystem, you know? I mean, like, it's not just like everyone do what you can, you know, however you feel like, you know, this, I mean, in order to be effective, and that's, I think, like, you look at the most powerful advocacy groups, they, they have their shit together. You know, it's not just that they have money. Money can be really carelessly spent, you know, and we've seen examples of that. It has to be spent wisely. And sometimes you don't even need that much money if it's crafted correctly and the right people are involved yeah. in kind of executing it. So, and I, I really like to hear that, you know, you're going to your firms and saying like, you know, we have, we have a lot of resources here and that we have to be willing to deploy them. You know, I, I'd love to hear an example of, because obviously, you know, especially for all of you now, you have corporate clients and a lot of those corporate clients are, there's a bunch of white people in those rooms being like, what are we going to do? Like, how are we oh, going to, yeah. you know, where's our black tile? Like, what's our little Instagram? Like, how are we going to, mm -hmm. we, where's the ugly CP? Like, where's our money? You know, how can you guys leverage your own access to kind of corporate decision-making and saying like, look, a $5 million donation to the United Negro College Fund, that's great. But how about you give $10 million of your lobbying dollars to kind of affect some of these policies being changed? You know, like that actually might have much more return on investment in terms of the outcomes you say you want. Yeah. I mean, some of these people like don't actually want those outcomes. They just don't want to be, you know, called out for being racist. But I mean, like black advocates, I think actually have a huge ability to kind of just help these companies decide meaningful um kind of like how they can meaningfully contribute yeah. to this revolution. So how do you yeah. feel about that? It, it means a lot to have corporations, businesses, organizations that aren't typically activating in these spaces to be involved, right? So to have um, an anal a committee analysis or a fact sheet that has support from a wide range of organizations and businesses is huge. So it's, it's incumbent upon us to really talk to our clients and, 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 and give them all of the reasons why they shouldn't shy away from the tough bills, right? keep the pressure on them to really meet this moment, to step outside of their comfort zone and really just kind of imagine life outside of the realm of how they typically operate. You know what I'm saying? And so, yeah. oh. Oh. 
sorry. Uh, many of them have are, are asking these, these exact questions. You know, how can I get involved? What's out there? What's available? What would be a good opportunity for us and our sector and, and things like that to sort of position ourselves in, in the right sort of ways? And it's, uh, you know, being a black person that's involved in those conversations, you know, I'm having the same conversation with them that, you know, I just had with you. Okay, you have your statement. That's great. Also, Make sure you're talking to your black employees and look internally and see what you can do just inventory wise. Who are your contractors and suppliers and, and those sorts of things, because that's the next question that people are going to ask after you put out this statement. And then, yes, let's talk about legislation. This is what's going on in the legislature. And, you know, you don't have to support everything, but there are some things that you can find a nexus to. Um, that, that might be useful for you to, you know, put your name on and say that you actually care about that. The, the company X might have a relationship with member, you know, Y directly in their district to be able to say, hey, it actually would be good if we repeal affirmative action because that would increase the pipeline of, of diverse candidates that can come to us and X, Y, and Z. We have these problems in this realm. Um, so just trying to have conversations with them to think outside of the box, and I think each of us, um, have clients that have asked that are uh, trying to be engaged and just trying to find their space. It's, it's just kind of navigating um, that client relationship to help you know, bring them bring them along and, and, and do things that, frankly, are going to be in their best interest that in the long run. Yeah. Well, I'm glad. I'm actually glad you said that, Delilah, because I was going to say the same thing. Is the money is nice, but really, in order to meet this moment in real time. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, you need to look at your own board. You know, I mean, you're having this conversation with me, the only black ass person on this Zoom, and I'm looking at all y'all, and nobody's a person of color, which I don't really buy into that term. I buy into blackness, but there's no, there's, there's not, nobody else on here that looks like me, y'all. Like, this is a problem. So let's, you know, let's start with the man in the mirror. Um, but I, I, I mean, I don't really have more to add to that because I think that what you two well, said that was, is so i mean i don't know how y'all are doing this because i mean honestly like i because it makes it so much more obvious like i was on a call i was on a zoom with this art project and you know i was trying to kind of refocus its energy on kind of inclusivity and kind of like giving different people space in the art world and i'm like and they were like yeah we should do that i'm like what we need is a zoom that doesn't look like this you know why is it me Period. and two white dudes you know, like every single person I'm going to go talk to about joining this project yeah. is either going to be a person of color or a woman. And hopefully someone who's like, you know, trans, if I can get them or gay or, you know, disabled at this point, you know, everybody need to be up in here, you know? Yeah. And so I'm just like, I can't imagine you guys going to work and having it be so plain. You're like, wait, 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 wait. It's like a Brady Bunch every day. You know, like that's, that's yeah. exhausting. I think, I think, I think we've all taken a day at least to Please, say several, we need a moment. But I'll tell you, this environment, and I'll let you guys speak for yourself, but this environment has let me feel so much more free about just being more vocal about the support and need and time and effort for black communities. So when they ask me questions like that, I think at that point they expect honesty and not for me to use a bunch of words, but use like, no, this is the problem, this is your issue, and this is why. And I think, honestly, I think sometimes they're a little taken back because the three of us do have come with a, you know, a certain level of privilege based on our profession, right? And I think that because we've stayed in this perfect professional bubble, um, that when we come to them like, oh, no, this is your black-ass problem, they're like, oh, uh, oh, you, you do know about the blacks. And it's like, yeah, like, it's a new fucking yeah, era. I have proper diction. But I, yeah. you know, I'm black as like, oh, this, what you see is not really me, ma'am. Okay, this is I put I buttoned up for you. Okay, like mm -hmm. this, you know. Yeah, yeah buttons off now. This is buttons off yeah, time. Like, it's like I'm already now. in the door, so you know, can't do nothing <laughs> yeah, now. Right here we are. So it's real. It's real. Well, this yeah. is uh, this has been really. You guys are also brilliant and captivating, and so I'm really glad that we got this together. Um, I had a few more questions, but why don't we just add on, kind of like. Uh, what kind of, how can, how can we increase the number of Delilah, Leah's and Andrea's? Like, how can there be more, you know? I mean, the fact that I knew exactly who to do, I was like, I know all, I know all of them. There's probably a couple other people I could have reached out to, but you know, there's not a lot beyond that, you know? So like it's, y'all can't do all the work. 
So like, what is a, how do we increase the pipeline to create more black advocates? A lot of, I mean, the, the reality of it all is that a lot of people don't even know what the hell lobbyists do, period, right? That's black, yeah. white, Mexican, Chinese across the board. Um, one of the things that um, Delilah and I have done a lot since Crown Act um, is go to schools and just kind of, you know, talk to people about what we do, um, what lobbyists are, how we got on our path. Because if you talk to all three of us about how we got into this business, you're going to get three completely different stories. And that's the beauty of it all. Anybody can do it. Yeah. Literally, right? Yeah. So I think it's just, you know, getting out there and, and talking about what we do, having conversations, all three of us mentor. So if there are people coming through um, doing fellowships or internships, um, black black folks especially, um, I know for me anyway, I'm always making time for coffees or, you know, lunches or whatever just to kind of talk about it and give advice because it's not easy, um, especially when you're starting out in this business, doing what we do. And if it wasn't for a handful of people who really mentored me up, I wouldn't have the confidence that I have right now. So I always try to give that back. Yeah, I 100% agree with that. I would say that there are um, there are black lobbyists that came before us. This is just, you know, we're talking to sort of a, a slice of this generation of sort of black advocates. But there are black, amazing black advocates that are powerful and have done their thing that, that came before us, that are our mentors, that, that help us in this space, um, that are incredibly important. And so you know, I think all three of us have made it a priority to sort of try to reach back um, and make sure that we're talking to young people, make sure that we make ourselves available for mentorship. So that's important. Um, the other thing that I would say to any young person that has an interest in policy is just to try, just get involved, um, whether that be with a nonprofit um, or engaging with somebody's volunteering on a campaign. Start talking to people because as Leah said, everybody comes to this space differently. If you talk to any lobbyist in Sacramento, they all kind of have a little bit of a different story of how they found, you know, their way into politics. And so you don't have to, if there's no cookie cutter, there are a million and one different ways to skin this cat and to get into this space and build a career. Um, and so you just kind of have to get your foot in the door by like engaging in politics. Um, whether that be yeah. on the policy side or on the campaign side yeah. or something like that. Um, and reach out. Yeah. Yeah. I'll piggyback on that. My mentors forced me to mentor. They said that the book does not stop with me and they did not give me that the information and the relationships that they have with, to, that they shared with me to just me be a hoarder of that knowledge and those relationships. So I, I love to mentor and it's great, but I absolutely was, talked to by my mentors <laughs> into, into uh, mentoring and not because I don't want to mentor, but it's, it's, I think we get to the space where, and especially in politics where you're still always learning. And so I'm like, I don't even know what to tell anyone else. Cause I wake up, I pray and I go on about my day. So that's where the Lord puts me is where I end up. So I'm always like, that's my mentorship, pray and keep it moving. Um, but, but no, but love, love to mentor, uh, you know, especially young black, young black women, because lobbying is intimidating. You know, when I was, a, even when I was a staffer, I was like, what do lobbyists do? They just come in and they walk straight into this elected official's office. And then all of a sudden he told me he was voting no, but now he's voting yes. So they have like power at their fingertips. And so I think like it's intimidating. So one, I deem someone that you like, who you know is strong on the issues that you're interested in, because just because you're black doesn't mean that criminal justice is your interest. You know, agriculture, uh, uh, maybe you're someone who grew up in a uh, food desert. Maybe that's what you're interested in, in local government, access to food and nutrition, which parallels into several different things. But find something that you're interested in and find someone who is good in that space and talk to them. Um, uh, my last one is, is uh, Lee and Delilah have gone to, to schools. Um, I actually just accepted an interview that's supposed to happen at the end of the year um, with uh, North Carolina A&T, my alma mater. Um, about what lobbyists do and how we impact change. Um, and because last, they did an article last year that was like all entrepreneurship and some other kind of industry, but no one touched into politics. So, you know, I had to write an email like, hold up, hold up, hold up, hold up, hold up. Um, and so uh, we will be having an interview uh, later, I think, I think at the end of August, um, you know, to talk about what it looks like for you to be black and a lobbyist in this space. And it doesn't always have to coincide with criminal justice and, you know, civil and, and, and social engagement. 
right? Right. And, and to yeah. that point, um, you know, being a black lobbyist in the corporate space, you do have an opportunity to engage with people in ways that they maybe aren't used to or haven't experienced before that also creates space. Um, so it, it's important to have black people everywhere at every level of everything. Right. Black people everywhere all the time. You know, I was like, y'all got me wanting to be a lobbyist. I mean, beware. Come, come through. Come <laughs> through, know, please. Beware, beware. When, that, when that day comes. Um, well, oh, you guys, we'll thank you so much. We love on you like we love on each other. In the please, please. I, yes. I just don't know, if they're, I don't, I don't know if I'm ready for all that. Um, it's, a sh- it's a show, Trey. You don't even want to see us when we run into each other in the hall. To each other in the hall. <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, I, yeah, I already know. <laughs> well, thank you so much. This has been really illuminating and helpful. And I hope that it gives a lot of people a, an idea of the brilliant work you're doing and the kind of, um, impact that you're having on so many people. And, th- and that's the thing. It's like, your work is so far reaching, you know, it's not just kind of like this bill here. It's like people's lives are being transformed because of these policies and they're being shaped by people like you guys and specifically by you guys. So I'm really happy to, um, bring more visibility and kind of congratulations to your work because it's deserved. Thanks. So, Same to you. Thank you for having us. Appreciate oh, it. Oh, anytime. This is great. This is a great way to start my day. I mean, this is, yeah. thank you for making it happen. So love you all. Um, and this will thank you. Uh, hopefully post next week. Perfect. I will, great. I want to end with Brianna Taylor, Brianna Taylor, Brianna Taylor, Absolutely. Brianna Taylor, Brianna Taylor, Brianna Taylor. I appreciate you and happy Juneteenth. Yes. Happy June 2. Have a wonderful day, you all. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Love you.